All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to continue our time of worship by studying God's Word. If you would open your Bible to the New Testament book of Titus, the series is entitled All in the Family, which uh, probably gets a background track going in some of your minds if you're over the age of maybe 50 or so. And uh, it's not a great TV show background track, maybe the shrillest voice in history. Uh, so I'm sorry about that. But there's no intentional homage to <laughs> um, Archie Bunker and so forth. But the idea is, is that we're, we're, we call ourselves a faith family, right? We, we use that language all the time. And when we look at God's word, we see in the New Testament letters, we see how the apostles put, put faith in faith family. And not only that, we see how the apostles put family in faith family so that both of those words matter equally. The faith modifier is really important because we're a spiritual family. We're not just centered around relationships. This isn't just a social club. We're centered around faith in Jesus Christ, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We center around the gospel. We lose the gospel, we lose everything. But it's not, you think about uh, the entailments of if you change the language and we weren't a faith family but we were like faith acquaintances. Right, that suggests a whole different model of what our relationship should look like or faith warriors, faith ninjas, right? Well, now we're in attack mode all the time, right? But if we're a faith family, that has a whole, um, a whole series of associations that are drawn into our minds to make us think about what this thing, the church, should look like. You think about family for a second. So family at its best, family at its best is the, it's the people you belong to. Family at its best is the people that you are most comfortable being yourself with. You don't have to keep up appearances. They know you. You might as well be yourself. These people know you. They live in the house with you. That's family, right? Family, your own family and a faith family has um, ordinary moments and special moments. You have your your average Tuesday and your ham sandwich, right? You have your ordinary moments and you have your, your birthday celebrations and your vacations. You have special moments and ordinary moments, ordinary graces and special graces. The same thing is true in a faith family. You have ordinary graces that we don't even, sometimes they're right under our nose and we don't even feel them anymore. And then others that, are, that feel special and pop and have felt value, right? Family, your own family and a faith family has some degree of dysfunction, right? So think about that, growing up as a child in your home, in your family, if the aggravating people in your living room or around your kitchen table weren't family members, if they were friends, you could invite them to leave. The reason the dysfunction kind of persists is if you're aggravated by them and you can go to your own room and decompress and then you come out and they're all still there, right? Because it's family and families work through this kind of thing and you stick uh, together and you work through difficulties and heartache and frustration and offenses and so there's forbearance and forgiveness and hard things. Family kind of has all that. It has the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's all mixed in there. I, I, used, to, um, I used to love Christian books um, that suggest everything can be awesome the moment you finish reading this book. I was a card-carrying idealist. And so if I read a book on parenting... I'd be like, as soon as I'm done with this book, 
my kids are so lucky, it's going to be amazing for them, right? And I would read the book, and then I would try it and realize it's all lies. It's, it, there's none of this. This isn't working, right? And then I would read books on the church. It's like as soon as you finish reading this book on the church, you're going to know which way uh, to fix the church and make it amazingly awesome. But you read through that and you live long enough and you start to realize idealism and realism are two very different things, right? And thankfully, there are some great books written about the church that both uphold the beautiful thing the church can be aspirationally, the beautiful thing the church can be at its best, and yet they're great books because they don't just hold up the, the beautiful thing the church can be and often is, but they, they also hold this tension of how messy it can be in the church, how frustrating and not ideal it can be, how inconvenient it can be in the church. Thankfully, there are great books like that, and there are 21 such books like that in your New Testament, and they're called epistles. And they uphold the beautiful aspiration of what the church can be at its best while injecting the reality of how hard it is and how messy it is to follow Jesus and to follow Jesus together. Following Jesus by myself, I can do that, right? But following Jesus together gets a little bit messy. And this one is an epistle. This is a letter. That's what an epistle is. Titus is a, is a letter. And it's one of the so-called pastoral epistles. And it's called pastoral epistles. There are three of them in the New Testament. And they're addressed to people by name. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. They're called pastoral epistles because the Apostle Paul is writing to someone who's a leader in the church to someone who has teaching responsibility in the church. Paul gives responsibilities for them to appoint elders. So they're kind of like apostolic delegates who have some role of leadership. Timothy in the church at Ephesus and Titus at the churches in Crete. So the pastoral epistles though, I think this is really important to say by, uh, in the outset here is they're not just written, like in other words, this series isn't just, hey, if your elders stay in the room and everybody else can walk away because we're talking to the teachers. No, no, the, these letters are in the Bible for the church of all ages. It's not just for leaders, elders, teachers, small group leaders, it's for all of us to benefit from the wisdom of what God has put in his word here because some of the, uh, some of the pronouns that are used in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus they're not singular pronouns. In other words, it's not you, Timothy, you, Titus. It's those yous are y'alls. The, the whole church is being addressed, so the church is being brought in on what does it look like for a church to be well-taught and well-related to each other, caring and worship and nurture and mission. It's all plugged into these pastoral epistles. I'm so grateful for what God has given in these letters that are often overlooked. The other thing that I think the pastoral epistles bring unique blessing to the church of all ages is that the pastoral epistles, they say some unique things with some level of detail that you don't get if you didn't have the pastoral epistles. So for example, some of the clearest teaching in the entire New Testament on the difference between true and false teaching is in the pastoral epistles. Some of the things that are clearest in the New Testament about the goodness of creation are in the pastoral epistles. The dangers of pride and the love of money, pastoral epistles. The importance of good works in the Christian life, pastoral epistles take us to all those really important themes and places with a lot of clarity. And so this letter is telling us what it means to be all in as a faith family what we ought to be about as a church family. That said, go ahead and follow along with me. I'm going to read Titus 1, 
the introductory words through verse four. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So these four verses, they convey Paul's greeting to Titus and to the Christians who are on the island of Crete. We'll pick up a little bit more on that as we move through the letter, what that involved. This is basically just Paul saying hi. It's Paul saying good morning church. It's an apostolic hello. And this glorious gospel hello, that's the name of the sermon this morning, this glorious gospel hello is reminding that spiritual family, and by extension, this spiritual family of who we are. God is the Father. So there's family language right here in the introduction. God is the Father. Christ Jesus is the Savior. Paul is a servant and Titus is a son. It's it's filled with language of family type of language. God has a people whom he has made his own and in making them his own, he has made us his children. He has made us his family. He has adopted us into his forever family. And as a part of God's forever family, we have a story. God's family has a story. We have a past. We have elements of our past. If we told the story of who we are as God's people, we have a past and not every part of our past is something we're proud of. That's that's why the story has to be a redemption story. It has to be a won you back, got you back, rescued you type of story. The father plans this rescue of a very broken people and then the son provides their redemption by his dying and his blood being shed on their behalf and then he rises from the dead and then the spirit is given to change them The father plans it, the son achieves it, and the spirit applies it. This is the glorious story of the gospel. We have a past, but we also have a present. So there's a story as a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, there's a story you're living in right now as a part of the people of God. And it means this, what you do today matters. What you do tomorrow matters. The kind of people we are becoming matters. So we have a past, we have a present, and we have a future. We have a future. Christian faith believes that God is so sovereign that he can write a glorious ending to the story before the story has even begun. That's how awesome God is. That's how awesome you get to be when you know the end from the beginning. And when you write the end from the beginning, here's the relevance of grasping this for you as a disciple of Jesus Christ and a part of the church. The the Christians whose lives make a God-glorifying difference in the world are those Christians who know this story we're gonna rehearse this morning and who live with the grain of this story that God is writing. And here's the story. It starts with our past. Grace came and we believed. That's our origin story. Grace came and we believed. In the original language 
of the New Testament, verses one to four is one big, long sentence. There's not a period until the end of verse four. It's the third longest sentence in all of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Only two other letters that Paul writes. Of his 13 letters, only two other letters start with more words before he takes a breath. And those two letters are Romans and Galatians. And the third one is that Paul is utterly breathless at the end of verse four. This is, this is not some perfunctory high, some greeting, right, that's just kind of plug and play. No, there are things he is intentionally saying. If there were a fence around verse one to four, it would say high voltage. I mean, there is intense theological voltage in these words. It's charged with theology. Look at verse one. Paul, a servant of God, doulos is the Greek word, means slave, it's the very first words, Paul, me, slave of God, meaning Paul is bought, owned, and directed by God. That's the very first words right out of the gate, bought, owned, directed by God. An apostle, his next phrase, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That means personally commissioned and authorized by the risen Lord Jesus, given a message to convey a tamper-proof, read-only document to convey to the world, to the Gentiles. And he says, for the faith, that's his next phrase, for the faith of God's elect. That is, to further the faith, to deepen and enrich the faith, to strengthen the faith of God's elect. And you see that next phrase, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. This is a mouthful. There is so much Paul is saying in these opening words. You put it all together, verses one to four together, and here's my kind of, my effort at an amplified translation of verses one to four. I, Paul, am a slave of God, commissioned by Jesus, entrusted with revelation to further the faith of undeserving sinners unexpectedly chosen by grace, transformed by truth, given hope that can't die by a God who can't lie, the God who made promises before the world was made, and the God who unveiled his world-saving purposes through the preaching of an ex-Christ-hating Pharisee. That's, that's Paul from the word go. And then he directly addresses Titus. You see there, Titus, my true son in our common faith, followed by a benediction right there in verse four, grace to you and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, which is a common phrase that Paul uses in a lot of his letters, grace to you and peace from God. Again, that is loaded language. That's not plug and play, that's loaded language. It's basically Paul saying, Titus, you and the Christians in Crete are the objects of the unrelenting favor of God. You don't deserve it, but it's coming in your direction constantly. The unrelenting grace and favor of God is yours. And so it's not just grace, but it's peace. Peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Peace means your future, Titus and Church of Crete, your future entails stem to stern healing, wholeness, and blessing. That's what you got out front. That's your absolute certain ending is landing there. Grace to you. Peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It's a family story. Grace came and we believed. Paul says it all began with a promise. If you're taking notes, God promised it. 
This grace that came to us and found us was promised by God in the beginning. When, when did it come? Before time began. This is hard to believe. Um, it's going to make some of you feel old. But um, 22 years ago, a project by Cademan's Call called In the Company of Angels. Yeah, 22 years ago, that project. It was an awesome CD. Some of you had it. I had it. Wore it out. Track two, I went and looked at it last night. Track two of Cademan's Call's project has a song called Before There Was Time. And it really gets at this very same kind of language we're looking at here in Titus. It says, before there was time, it's talking to God, there were visions in your mind, in the divine mind. Before there was time, there were visions in your mind. There was death in the fall of mankind, but there was life and salvation's design. Before there were days, there were nights I could not see your face, but the night couldn't keep me from grace when you came and you took my place. That's gospel charged, richly theological. God promised it before time began. God revealed it. God revealed it. How? Paul says, this is how, in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Savior. That's how. Jesus told me to do it he didn't ask me to do it. He commanded me to do it, and he's the savior of the world. <laughs> right? So I, it was kind of one of those um, no option type of situations. Cannot not preach this gospel. God reveals it. It's a revealed word. If you are a Christian here this morning, if you have followed Jesus in your life, that could have been 20 years ago, could have been last Sunday, if you are a Christian here this morning and you believe in Jesus, you didn't figure that out on your own. It was revealed to you. A, a veil was over your face that kept you from seeing the truth and the Holy Spirit pulled the veil back. You saw Jesus hanging on the cross in your place. You saw the truth of his resurrection and you couldn't get to him fast enough. You believed it because it was revealed to you. In and of yourself, your spiritual eyes were blind, your spiritual ears were deaf, your spiritual heart was hard, and then the Spirit came and reversed all outcomes. He broke your hardness of heart. He shattered your deafness, and he burst through your blindness, and suddenly you saw, you heard, and you wanted. It's a revealed faith. It's an illuminated, regenerating faith. He revealed it. Maybe this morning, maybe God is on your one-yard line. Maybe you would be saying this morning, I feel like God has been hounding me for weeks, maybe months, impressing upon me what it means to follow Jesus, and I've been going my own way, but he keeps coming after me. He, he's relentless, and he keeps telling me to turn. And if God is on your one-yard line this morning, don't let me talking up here interrupt you from believing and receiving Jesus. Go ahead and, and do it. You don't need an altar call. Make your own. Right where you are, Put your trust in Jesus Christ, the one who alone can forgive your sins, the one who alone can give you new life, the one who alone can give you his spirit that leads you further and further into freedom and liberty in Jesus. 
put your trust in him alone. And when you do that, if you've done that or when you do that, that faith that springs up, that came from God. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that faith was a gift of God. It's not your own doing so that you can boast. It's God's gift that you believe. We know the story. God's revealing. If you're a Christian, God's revealing led to your believing. That's how it all shook out. Here's what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Christianity is not one more religion where God tells people what they have to do to get to him. Christianity is God coming down to us doing what we could never do. Doing everything necessary to turn us, to cleanse us, and to claim us eternally for his glory. That's Christianity. Paul is breathless because he's talking about that idea. That's the story that he's riffing on here in the first few verses. So when you tell the family story, make sure you remember the past. Grace came and we believed. Make sure you live toward our present reality. The present reality is this. Know the truth and you'll be changed. You see how Paul describes himself as an apostle for the faith, that is the believing for the faith of God's elect or God's chosen and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. What we need deeply is truth. We live in a world filled with error. We live in a world filled with lies. And sometimes we tell those lies to ourselves outside of Christ and we can actually start believing them. Theologians call this the noetic effect of the fall. That is, the effect of the fall that touches not just the will, not just the feelings, not just the body, but the mind. So that the mind is, yes, capable of clarity in certain areas, but all the clarity we're capable of is also injected with distortions. We can't get to ultimate truth on our own apart from the revelation of God and the illumination of his Holy Spirit. Romans chapter one talks about this reality as a global reality. It talks about what we did at the very beginning. We exchanged God's glory for substitutes. We said, I'll take this glory instead of your glory. And Paul says in Romans one, the moment you did that, claiming to be wise, they became fools and their foolish hearts were darkened. The lights went out and now we don't know how to get to God because it's too dark and we can't see our way forward. So there's personal blindness and there's cultural blindness. There's not a culture on this world, fallen as this world is, that does not have its own idiomatic, unique ways of resisting God. Our culture is the same. Nominal Christian religion has its way of resisting God. And here's the problem. We have this personal blindness, we have this cultural blindness, and what we do is when we're confronted with the truth, we double down and we defend. We believe our own lies. If you've ever read um, 1984 by George Orwell, you see this, uh, this language that's forced upon the residents of Oceana that just makes their minds kind of go sideways. Everything that is described this way actually means the opposite. Everything that's described this way actually means the opposite. So there were four ministry departments. The ministry of peace that concerns itself with war. The ministry of truth with lies. The ministry of love with torture. And the ministry of plenty with starvation. And no one in Oceana 
drank ordinary coffee. They drank victory coffee. Nobody drank ordinary gin. They drank victory gin. They smoked victory cigarettes. There was nothing that was ordinary. It was all victory, victory, right? Just plug this into your mind. All we're doing and living in here is victory. There's a man named Winston Smith, and he lives in this dilapidated old apartment that's called Victory Mansion. This is cognitive dissonance, how distorted things are. I don't think Orwell was tipping his hat to Romans 1, but accidentally he kind of did. The enemy darkens people's minds so they can't see the truth. They can't see how compelling Jesus is. Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So what happens the day you're saved? What happens the day you believe in Jesus? Here's what happened. The spirit hit the lights. (laughs) Suddenly you're not in a dark room. You're in a room that's lit up and you see Jesus standing there offering you terms of mercy and salvation that are free. He paid it all Run to me, you get life, you get forgiveness, you get hope, you get joy. You find out the purpose of your very existence. Come to me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And what did Jesus say? You shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Set you free. We need truth. We can't live without truth. Truth wasn't easy to find in Crete. You see in verse 12? In in verse 12, Paul says, one of their very own prophets. So he's talking about a Cretan philosopher whose name is Epimenides. He says, I'm going to quote your guy. Here's what your guy, a Cretan philosopher, says. Quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And look at Paul, how hard he rolls in verse 13. This testimony is true. (laughs) Paul is basically saying, finally, a Cretan who tells the truth. Just for this, it's a Christmas miracle. For once in all of history, a Cretan who tells the truth, right? So there's old Crete, but there's also supposed to be new Crete because now there's a church in Crete. And so Paul creates this massive contrast. Old Crete is the last place to go if you wanted to hear the truth. And Paul says sometimes the problem is that's even happening in the church. You see down in verse 11, there are teachers in the church who are, Paul says, ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. Imagine it. Pastors whose ministry is really about money and power. There's nothing new under the sun. Our day has been seen before. No wonder Paul says, okay, Titus, in just a second, we'll look at this next week. Titus, job number one is I need you to hand out some pink slips to false teachers. I need you to board up some classrooms in the church, raise up some elders, and get the truth functioning in the life of the church again. Teach the church wise for salvation. Again, that's the order of the day. That's the most pressing matter. So there's old Crete, filled with lying and deception, and then there's new in Christ, Crete, where believers are being transformed by feeding on the truth. We feed on the truth or we die. We are sanctified by the truth or we are not growing. 
lies. This is what the Christian life is about. We live in fellowship and we look at God's word and he is transforming us to believe more and more his word is true, our ideas aren't true, his ideas are called truth with a capital T. We can implicitly trust everything that he says in his word. You know, man-made religion lies about who God is and how we find him. All over the world, man-made religion lies about who God is and how we find him. The church I was a part of, the pastoral team in New Orleans, and we would do two evangelistic outreach events every year, one in the spring and one in the fall. It was called the Alpha Course. It was a 10-week evangelistic course where you would teach about the Christian faith. You'd invite your friends and family members or neighbors, coworkers who maybe didn't believe in Jesus but were interested in learning about the Christian faith, and you'd sit down, you'd enjoy a meal together. There would be a brief presentation of some truth of the scriptures or some reason for the faith, and then we would sit down and hash it out and talk and dialogue at the tables, and there were so many people, year over year, continues to happen, year over year of people putting their trust in Jesus Christ, having heard these things for the first time. And I would process all the baptism testimonies. I was the person on our staff who read all the baptism testimonies and talk with people about their grasp of the truth. And I'll never forget, there was a, one lady who ended up saying in the waters of baptism, she said, when I realized that Christ paid it all, I was so angry. And I thought, that's an interesting way of saying it. She said, when I realized Christ paid it all, I was so angry because I felt like I had been lied to for 30 years. And she said, then that anger was overcome with overwhelming joy because I knew the truth. Jesus paid it all. And works-based religion, the, the husk of her man-made efforts fell away and she trusted in Christ and him alone. Sound doctrine matters. Right teaching, right theology, the right gospel matters, and it matters eternally. You know, there's a popular sentiment in the evangelical world that what we believe doesn't really matter, just what we do. There is only one obstacle, and one thing that stands in the way of that kind of reductionism, namely the New Testament. <laughs> also the Old Testament, so too. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, so this is another pastoral epistle, and Paul tells Timothy, I want you to watch out for two things. Watch your life and watch your teaching. <laughs> for in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Your life matters. Watch it. Guard it. Live for the glory of Jesus. Repent of sin. Keep short accounts with God. Fear the Lord. And watch what you say when you open the book. Teach it well, teach it carefully, teach it rightly. Sound doctrine leads to sound living all over the pastoral epistles. Here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Now the goal of our instruction, so he tells you what he's praying for when he preaches and when he teaches. The goal of our instruction is love, not knowledge. That's not the end game. The goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's knowledge is meant to transform. It doesn't stop with knowledge. It doesn't stop with kind of egg-headed theologians and scholars in the church. It's meant to transform us, or it's not wired up right. It's not doing its ultimate job. Paul speaks here of knowledge that leads to godliness. So it's not just, it's not just that you receive the truth that matters, 
It's how you receive the truth that matters. When you receive the truth of God's word, do you receive it humbly? Whatever is in that next chapter of the Bible, maybe that you've not read, are you prepared to say whatever is there is true? And if I'm facing the wrong direction and the text says you're facing the wrong direction, my job isn't to turn the Bible, it's to turn my life. That's transformation. Will you receive it humbly? Will you receive God's word with a repentant heart or a defensive heart? That's two very different things. Think about this for your own life. What's an area in your life right now that you're asking God to change? You could look at self-reflectively the Holy Spirit putting his finger on something in your life and you could say, I'm so done with that. I'm so tired of this. God, change me. Work in my life. Don't let me give up on pursuing you and pursuing change. What's an area in your life that you're saying, God, as I read your word, God, as I fellowship with Christians, don't let me use your word to change others without letting your word change me. That's huge. One of the clearest evidences of grace begun is growth in godliness. How do you know that grace has begun? You're starting to bear fruit, fruit that remains. What fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Right, we're, we're growing in these things. It's not, all, it's not perfection. Right? It's not like, hey, one month later, all the fruits of the Spirit were in full bud. Right? No, no. It's, it's a progressive thing, but the, the growth is happening. When you tell the family story, make sure you remember the past. Grace came and we believed, and the present, know the truth and you'll be changed, and make sure you embrace the future. Hope is sure, for God can't lie. Hope is sure, for God can't lie. You know, this... This hope theme resonates more and more with me every day of my Christian life, I feel like. It's just something I can't shake, and I'm not trying either. Hope, hope is huge. There are, uh, there are two ways to become really cynical. Let me just, as an aside, this is a freebie. If you've not read Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life, it's an outstanding book to read on prayer. But if you read nothing else, just read the couple of chapters on cynicism. They are, they are so insightful. It is, it'll hold up a mirror of insight to your life. There, there are two ways to become really cynical. Number one is um, dishonest people are really cynical. They can't help but suspect that other people play games with the truth because it's how they survive in this world. It's how they get by. So they're basically projecting their lack of integrity on everybody else. We're all sneaking around trying to get our own and I'm gonna beat you to it faster than you do. So their cynicism is not one of being a victim of bad treatment so much as being a perpetrator. The other way to become cynical is to be lied to. There are some people who are really cynical because it's been a long time since somebody told them the truth and backed it up. And this is where theology can become your friend. This is one more area where theology can become your friend. Because I love what God can't do, according to the Bible, as much as I love what God can do. And here's what I mean. There's a list of things that the New Testament tells us God can't do. 
God can't die. He will never cease to be God. He will never pass out of existence. He will never fade into irrelevance. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He was here before the world began and he will be here to the end. God can't deny his own character. He can't contradict his own righteous nature. He can't stop being good and holy and pure and righteous. He can't make a single move in that direction of unrighteousness. And, and here's good news. God can't lie. God can't lie. And Paul speaks of this hope of eternal life. You see, the hope of eternal life that God who cannot lie promised before time began. <laughs> That's great news. What God can't do is as good a news as what God can do. He can't lie, right? When other people say, I'll never leave you or forsake you, the pang and difficulty is sometimes you wait long enough and you find out when they said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, what they really meant is, I'll never leave you or forsake you until I do. When God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, it's impossible for him to be untrue to his word. He can't be unfaithful. The cynicism is exhausting. Gospel hope rescues us from the weariness of wondering what promises we can actually believe. So gospel hope is there for. Here, here's gospel hope, statements from the Bible that put hope in the fuel tank of the Christian. The grace of God is gonna reach you when you fall. The welcome of God awaits you when your life is done. The pleasures of God will catch you in the end. You can take it to the bank. Martin Luther famously said, I would stake my life on the promise of God a thousand times. Hope says, I don't know what the future holds but I know who holds the future. I was reading a biography of Martin Luther and came to the moment when he lost his daughter at the age of 14. And he turned and he said to her while he's holding his, his girl, and he said, my little girl, you would like to stay with your father here and you would be glad to go to your father in heaven? And she said, yes, Dear Father, as God wills, and she passed in his arms. And his next words were, you will rise and shine like the stars and the sun. That's Luther. His baby girl just stopped breathing, and he said, baby, you're shining. Hope. In the hardest hour, hope holds on to us. Hope has this way of calling the shot before it goes in. I know where my life is going. I know where I'm headed. I know I have a future. Here's some things that I know as a Christian because I have gospel hope. Suffering can't block God's presence. Death can't stop God's faithfulness. I don't need the diagnosis to change in order to know that God is good. You don't need the acceptance of that guy to look your way when God shouts his forever acceptance on day one. And his 
face shines on you. And at this point in Christ, there's nothing you can do to stop it if you've believed in him. When, when we look forward to the new creation that awaits us in Christ, we're not hoping in something that's gonna fail us. Friends, understand, believer, brother, sister this morning, we're not crazy, they are. Believe this truth. It's not your truth, it's the truth. Believe it. It's a certainty. This world's bling won't last. This world's hope is an empty suit. It's a shell. There's nothing behind it. We have real hope. You were made for God. You were made for Zion. You flourish there. Pleasures evermore in his presence. Your flourishing happens when your hope is firmly rooted in Christ. Why would you put it somewhere else? Our hope relies on the God who can't lie. And all of that truth is packed into Paul saying, hi. It's an apostolic greeting. It's a glorious gospel hello. There's a phrase that people often use in our culture that goes like this. You had me at hello. (laughs) And it conveys this idea that an initial sighting of someone or an initial introduction to someone was so compelling that you were immediately captivated. You had me at hello. And this is the Apostle Paul saying, look at where the gospel begins. We never, as a church, we never move on from the gospel. We only move further into it. And here's what Paul says that gospel is. Here's the story you're living in. We believed, we've been chosen, we're being changed, and we have hope, certain hope, promised before the world began.